Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Glorious and gracious Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have revealed yourself through creation that we can see of your might and your power and your glory, that through creation we see that you should be worshipped and given thanks but you have also given to us your word, Lord, that we might be able to see of our hope of salvation, Lord, that we might be able to see of the beloved Jesus Christ who descended into this world to be able to die for our sins. Lord, help us that we might be able to see and have this mind of Christ Jesus amongst ourselves, that we would see your mighty work within our own hearts as we seek to be able to put others before ourselves that we might be able to serve you as you have served us through your death. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. This is God's holy and infallible word. Please take heed how you hear. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Udia and entreat Syndicate to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, true, also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade, and the word of our Lord will stand forever. I love the Bible for many different reasons. The wisdom that you see throughout the pages of Scripture, the connection to Christ through the author, the Holy Spirit uniting all things, the style of writing, the elegance as you read through the Psalms or the poetic nature of the words that you see, the images that it gives. You could list along reasons for why you love the Word or portions of the Word. One of the reasons that I think we often overlook is why we love the Word is that I think that you see throughout all of the pages of Scripture is what you might call as rear and raw humanity. You read a book of fiction and, and pages might astound you of how a character acts or what that is, but all of that is, is made up in someone's mind. The author can place the character which they developed into any situation that they want. The hero is put in the right place at the right time to be able to defeat the villain. All of these things are orchestrated by the author and can be whatever they want. But yet, as we read through the pages of Scripture, we see the real and, real and raw humanity. Real life situations that are before us. Real people who act according to their own nature. 
that the hero doesn't always show itself in the pages of Scripture. It's encouraging because I think as you read the Bible, you start to see that this is speaking about people like you and me. That you realize that the pages of Scripture are about ordinary people the whole time serving an extraordinary God. You can read of what Moses does as he gets angry with the people of God for their complaining. Here he is, he's just uh, delivered them the news and the Lord has just saved them. They're wandering in the wilderness and what do they start to be able to do? Grumble and complain. You ever loaded up kids for a long journey or, or taking them on a bike ride as you're dragging them behind themselves and hear that grumbling and complaining? You understand why Moses gets angry. Or you read the pages of Scripture about Sarah and Abraham, both laughing as they're told in their old age that they're going to be able to have children, and you can relate to how they feel. You see Peter's boldness and how he gets his foot in his mouth. You see Paul's self-boasting, Thomas's questions, David's lust, Solomon's weakness, Jacob's trickery, Joseph's brother's jealousy. James and John, the sons of thunder, with hope of judgment impending upon those around them. Aaron's need to be able to worship an idol. Lot's delay in leading Sodom. Noah's gluttony. Joshua's anxiety. Jonah's fear. Martha's busyness. Elijah's doubt and despair. Gideon's insecurity. The list can go on and on. And you see all of these people and you see that they're real and raw as all of their sins come out. That they're real humans with raw emotions who do not have a script written by them in which they have to be able to act in certain ways. But what we see is God come in and intervene, God in His extraordinary ability and who He is blesses these ordinary people. And tonight's passage is one of these real and raw passages of Scripture that shows the truth of believers being ordinary people. But we have hope in this extraordinary God. Now, as we remember, Philippi is one of the, the top churches. It's a terrific church. If your friends were moving to the area of Philippi and they said, which church should I go to? Of course, you would say, go to Philippi, the first Presbyterian church in Philippi. And you wouldn't send them to the church in Galatia who might force them to be able to get circumcised on becoming members. You'd be cautious about sending them to the church in Corinth, who would boast of their sin that's within their walls. Or the church that Jude writes to, that hears false teachers in their midst who walk around unnoticed. Or Ephesus, when P Timothy's called in and these false teachers are wandering around from house to house, taking advantage of widows in their congregation. Your Philippi is, is among one of the best churches that we read about. Is it a pretty healthy position? Here they are supporting Paul in his ministry and his mission. They seem to be growing in their faith, but it's not perfect. Particularly, we find out this quarrel in this church, which is happening between these two women, Judea and Syndicate. Now, we have no idea what this disagreement is about. 
Their names are recorded as Paul, as carries his pen along by the Holy Spirit. But the reason is not. I don't seek to be able to move into the realm of speculation to delve into this reason. But in my short period of time, been involved in, as are the member, as an elder, either ruling or teaching the elder, this is one of the most common difficulties I think churches face. Churches are not often divided by heretical statements from the pulpit or through great disagreements on how we are to share the gospel. Churches often do not split because of deep theological convictions. People often do not leave churches because they have found out their pastor is a fraud or a false teacher. These things do happen, but they're not the most common thing that happens in churches. In a 2007 survey done by LifeWay, they asked people why they left their previous church. Now before we look at that, two factors I think we need to be able to note about these studies. is First, most of these studies are done on a small population of people. So when we're talking statistically, it's not very widespread. This survey only had 415 people. The second is that when you're asking a specific question about why people left a church, you're asking one side of the equation. Proverbs 18 says, one who states his case first might seem right until the other comes along and examines him. But listen to these examples why people left their church. Even if you don't agree with the statistical nature or I think you would see that it does prove the point here. 28% said church was not helping me develop spiritually. 20% did not feel engaged or involved in a meaningful church work. 18% said church members were judgmental of others. 15% said members seemed hypocritical. 14% said church didn't seem to place where God was at work. 14% said church was run by a a click that discouraged involvement. 16% said pastor was not a good preacher. 14% said the pastor was judgmental of others. 13% said pastor seemed hypocritical. 16 said too many changes in general drove them to be able to switch churches. But the point here is most of the people that left the church, even looking back on it, did not state theological reasons why they sought to be able to move. There was not great exposure of sin. All of these things seemed somewhat minor comparison to those great things, great sin or great disagreement, great heretical statements. And the church is filled with people. And our theology says that just because you join a church doesn't make you then perfect. Actually, we would say that the church is often the greatest place where you see sin. Not because of that there's more sin in the church, but those who live in a church have a higher view of sin, have a truer understanding of what sin is, 
So if you live in a true church, you would see more sin because you understand what sin is. If the world sits and boasts about sin and doesn't call it sin, then I think you would somewhat not agree that that's where that you, they're seeing more sin. They're just blind to the sin that they see. The world calls good evil and evil good. They endorse sin in their lifestyles, encourage you and sympathize with you. Whereas the, the true essence of sin is there should be true conviction. The church will be an encouragement to you. But as God calls us out of the world, He works on us. That we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. That the Word comes, and in the church, as the Word is preached out, what does the Word do? As Paul states in 2 Timothy, as Scripture is breathed out, it's profitable for what reasons? For teaching? for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Here as the word is preached, we're, we're taught, we're reproved, we're corrected, we're trained. Hard, vigorous things. James actually says of what happens in the church, of this quarrelsome nature. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. Here we see that the real nature that church life doesn't then mean that we live in a perfect harmony, that there is no such thing as quarrels or divisions, Again, you see the real and rawness of the nature of this church. Even a good, healthy church has divides within it, conflict within it. Utica and Syndicate have some form of disagreement. But let's not just point and, and say, well, it's the women. What about Paul and Barnabas? In Acts chapter 15, they have a disagreement about taking John Mark with them. And Paul says it's not wise for them to take him? What we're told in verse 39 is there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him, and they sailed to Cyprus. And Paul and Silas departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of God. This is the exact same word that the author of Hebrews uses this sharp disagreement is like sour wine. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. That's the exact same word. To stir one another up is this sharp disagreement that is used of Paul and Barnabas. Now some of us are great at stirring one another up, but as the author of Hebrews explains, it's not merely just to stir one another up. It's to stir one another up for love and good works. Not only Paul and Barnabas, but just prior to this in chapter 15, there came a great disagreement about whether people should be circumcised if they're joining the church from Gentiles. That the only way that you are saved is by fulfilling the law of Moses. 
And Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with these people. Later on in verses 6 and 7, the apostles' elders gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, here we see that just because there's a church doesn't mean that there's no disagreement. There's no conflict. That we actually see healthy debate. Disagreement does not then always immediately mean separation, but sometimes it means clarity. Disagreement moving towards resolution. But there are some people in the church that will stir up debate with no resolution to be found. Actually, Paul warns of Timothy and Titus of these type of people. That there's people who are puffed up, filled with conceit. They understand nothing, he writes to Timothy. That they're unhealthy, craving for controversy and quarrels about words, and they produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. He later instructs Timothy in his second epistle, second letter to Timothy, and says, have nothing to do with these foolish, ignorant controversies. And you know that they breed quarrels? Titus, he warns Titus and says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. So on one hand, we see conflict that works towards resolution, either resolution in which Barnabas and Paul separate, or resolution in where there's unity in what is actually the held the doctrine. But godly debate is different then from what Paul warns about these uh, foolish controversies. Like I said, this is one of the major things that I see separate and divide churches. Again, it's not the big debates over theological terms. It's about small things. Small things that two people say to one another. A word said in haste, a word said in spite, a word said in jest, a word said behind someone's back, a word not said, a word, a tone taken, a sorry not asked, a phone call not made, a decision made, an assumption made about a decision made, a motive assigned, a a word misinterpreted, an action done, a communication that's lacking. All of these things are things that I've seen that have been put in between two brothers and sisters, and then there's a big rock that separates them, and they seem that they cannot work it out. Do we understand these sharp, sharp words can pierce a person's heart? Or as James says, our tongue can start a whole wildfire. And many of us, if we're honest, have in in split seconds caused a greater fire. Even outside of the church in our own home, is this not true? You name it. You might be able to name it because you can think of a particular time, a particular person when you or someone else said something to you. Now we can understand, as Paul writes this letter, he says, I entreat Utica and Syndike, to be able to agree in the Lord. A direct command from an apostle to these two sisters to be able to agree in the Lord, to be able to work it out for the good of the body. 
Well, how are they to do this? We find out earlier in chapter 2 that here Paul encourages them to be able to have that mind amongst themselves. Not looking to their own interests, but the interest of others. This mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, though in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and humbling himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. And often what we see in church and even in reality in our house, we see this endless cycle of everyone wanting everyone else to be behind you. Always this question, who's going to serve who? See, clearly in our children, we end up having to say, if both of you or three of you cannot start thinking about putting the other person first, then we're never going to be able to find a resolution. There's only one Mario Kart cup. Only one person can go first. There's only one, whatever it is, they'll fight over anything. But who's going to have this mind of Christ? And it's easy to say, isn't it? Now the truth of the matter is we can't force someone else to have the mind and just say, well, you have that mind. Because that means that we're looking at our own interest and not the interest of others. Or to use that wildfire analogy again of our tongue, Smokey the Bear, only you can prevent forest fires. Only you are the one that can put others first. So we should constantly be asking, how can we help others? How can we constantly have this mind of Christ Jesus to be able to lay aside our own needs and desires or wants or whatever that is? Our pride and put on humility. How can I pray for you? How can I help you? What can I do for you? Not only in the future, but also things that have happened in the past. We might need to be able to swallow our pride, to make that phone call, to say that we're sorry, the words that we have said, the tone that we had, the time that is taken. Not a sorry with a but, just a simple sorry for my sin. But we also see not only the rawness of this, this passage of this problem that we agree in, but also the, the beauty which comes with it. It not only speaks of this raw and real emotions that we have, the decisions of the people, but also that God knows our frame, that he has given us instruction to be able to help us. He knows that we are sinners by heart. In Acts chapter 15, it was the council of elders, the, the presbytery, the general assembly that helped be able to settle the debate. Later in part, it was going to different missions field. In this case, in the local church, Eudia and Syndicate, it's their church family. God has not only just instructed them, work it out, He's also given people to be able to help them.
He says in verse 3, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Now this word here, true companion, has had a lot of ink spilled over it. Translated literally, it's yoke fellow. The image of, of two ox connected by one yoke moving in the same direction. Maybe it's the Epaphroditus, the, the prisoner that was with them that is now back here. He's encouraging Epaphroditus as he's returned back home to be able to help these women to be able to work it out. The Greek translation, John MacArthur's position is that it's, it's a person's name. Sinsigus is not commonly found in Greek literature. So I think as Gordon Fee puts it, this is unlikely. Chrysidem suggests that it's one of the women's husbands. But here, whatever it may be, here God has provided them a solution to be able to work it out, to be able to have other Christian, a Christian, or Christians plural, to be able to come alongside and help these women. I think it's more specific to when we think about right at the very beginning when Paul writes this letter, he, he tells that Paul and Timothy write this letter as overseers, as servants of Christ to the saints who are in Jesus, Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi. This letter is for all the saints, but more specifically, he also calls out with overseers and deacons. That possibly here, these people that are going to help work it out are the overseers and possibly even deacons. But it, whoever it is, they're there to be able to come alongside and help these women to be able to find some form of agreement in the Lord. And this is exactly what Jesus taught is here in Matthew chapter 18. If, if a brother sins against you, you're to go to that brother in person and to be able to confront him about the sin. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. But what happens when the conflict goes further? He doesn't say, well, go your separate way, sit in spite with one another, never speak to each other, never talk to each other, or just have nice pleasantries about each other. But if he doesn't listen, then you're to take one or two others among with you, along with you. And so too, Paul is using this principle as well. There's a disagreement here between these two women. Obviously, they're unable to be able to work it out. So therefore, we need to get other people involved. A conflict is never easy, but not dealing with it is always dangerous. You might be able to avoid <coughs> sorry. You might be able to avoid something now, but eventually it's going to return. But I think what we can see from this and have great comfort is, is there's conflict in the church, there's disagreement, but that does not change that these two women are still brothers and sister, uh, sisters in Christ. Later on, he says that here, there's these workers that come alongside that are, whose names are in the book of life. Here they are, we're actually told that these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. 
here, although there's this disagreement that they're still laboring and have labored at time past. If you remember where the church in Philippi began in, in Acts, as they go in there, there's a women's Bible study that actually began by the riverside, which began this church. Many have speculated that here are these two women probably were part of that original Bible study and part of this church plant. But here, we don't know the outcome of this situation. We don't find out how they resolve this, if they agree in the Lord. But here this passage reminds us of the the real and raw nature of church life and, and what it is to be brothers and sisters together on this side of heaven. It also speaks of the hope which we have to come. Here are these workers, Clement and other workers, assuming these window, women as well who have labored side by side by, with the gospel with Paul, and their names are in the book of life. Conflict remains in this life because sin still remains. All of us have sin in our lives, and when you come together as a church, it doesn't then make sin all disappear. Paul had that huge disagreement about John Mark, but yet in his last days, who does he call to be able to come visit him? Second Timothy, he calls Mark, and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. January 1st in 1812, John Adams broke his bitter 11-year silence with Thomas Jefferson. Although Jefferson and Adams were bitter political enemies during the presidential election of the 1800s, where Jefferson narrowly defeated Adams, Two leading intellectuals, politicians, one of Virginia, one of Massachusetts. had been allies, confidants, during the heady revolutionary days in the late 1770s. Some have even called their relationship that they're founding frenemies. But eventually in 1812, a reunion engineered by their mutual friend, Dr. Benjamin Rush. And in this, Adams wrote a short letter recapping his family's well-being and the promise of sending a packet containing two pieces of homespun lately produced in this quarter by one who was honored in his youth with some of your attention and much of your kindness. He sends with him two volumes of his son, John Quincy Adams' lectures on rhetoric and oratory, delivered at Harvard University. But Adams finally closed with these words. I wish you, sir, many happy new years, and that you may enter the next and many succeeding years with as animating prospects for the public as those that are present before us. I am, sir, with a long and sincere esteem, your friend and servant, John Adams. Here are these founding fathers separated because of some conflict and yet in 
their time able to be able to renew their friendship back. They would continue to write letters back and forth until the day where they both died actually on the same day. Now their bond as friends was merely about the union that shared in the same nation, their love for the nation. But how far greater is that of ours that is found in Christ? Our love for Christ should more abound than any love for a nation. That we should be able to, as to agree in the Lord, to be able to put conflict aside, to be able to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us, to be able to offer forgiveness and acceptance as, as people ask for forgiveness for us. We should be able to repent, to move forward, to be able to say sorry, to be able to put things aside, to be able to put people up as we put ourselves and not think of ourselves first. Or as Paul puts it here, that even in, in amongst this church with this disagreement, he speaks in verse 1 of how he loves these people. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand for, firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. That here Paul is able to be able to love the bride of Christ only because of what Christ has done. These people who are somewhat unlovable, and yet he is able to love them. And so too for us, as we think about our union with Christ, with one another, that we might be able to move forward, to be able to lay aside our own personal interests, to be able to think of others in prayer and encouragement. be able to put conflict aside that we might be able to pursue an agreement in the Lord. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. O oh, gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have died for all of our sins, that you love this church because this church has been bought with your blood. Lord, help us as we seek to be able to show your love and honor to one another that people would know that we are your disciples by how we love one another. Help us, Lord, if we know of people in our lives whom we have hurt or harmed, that we might swallow our pride and to be able to pursue them. Lord, help us if people have hurt us, that we might be able to, with biblical wisdom, know how we might be able to mend relationships that we might be able to seek to be able to glorify and honor you. Help us, Lord, for we know that we are sinful at heart and prone to be able to put ourselves first. Help us, Lord, for we know that you have given us each other in this church, but also given your spirit to be able to help us. We humbly lay these things at your feet. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.